Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. There's a difference between the way they're wording it and what they really mean by it, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it's written so that they can try to get you to agree with the wording, but I can't agree with what they want to do with it. Well, I'm here with Mike Winger, who has a great website called Bible Thinker, and he has a YouTube channel where he has done countless hours of Bible study, but also cultural commentary, biblical commentary, commentary on different uh, cultish ideas that are coming into the church, different false ideas that are coming into the church. Uh, he, he talks about everything, Calvinism versus Arminianism. I mean, you name it, and he's probably got a video on it. And so I am so thrilled to welcome Mike to the show. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me. And um, Elisa, I'm excited for you and for how God's growing your platform and giving you more of a voice. I think the things that you're sharing are so important Well, thank for you. this time that we're in right now. They're so relevant and important. And your new book coming out, which I do have somewhere over here. All right. I have too many books, but I got, <laughs> yes, I got look, right twinsies, <laughs> twinsies. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And I, but I felt like when I discovered your YouTube channel, I was just overjoyed because you just, you bring such biblical and solid and logical thinking to so many topics. And so I know that a lot of my listeners are big fans of yours. So we're all thrilled that you're here. You've been on the podcast before, but this was before I had a video podcast. So now we get to see your face as we talk. We, yeah. we did a couple episodes on substitutionary atonement, specifically penal substitutionary atonement. Those were very popular. People were very grateful to have some analysis on that really important topic. But uh, so recently somebody posted, uh, it was a post from a more progressive Christian type Facebook page. And they said, oh my goodness, like how do we answer this? And it was a post that had uh, over a dozen, well, I think there's more than that even. I'm looking at it. There's like there's like 23, 23, 23 like proclamations uh, that was made by this progressive Christian platform. And I thought, 
the first person I thought of was, I want to get Mike Winger to come talk about these things because I feel like you will bring such a good sound and, um, you know, analytical uh, perspective to some of these things. Because I think, honestly, Mike, I think some of these points, the average Christian would look at and be like, oh, that's dumb. I know that's not right. And I know why. But some of them are more complicated. Some of them are trickier. They're more subtle. And so this was posted and the commentary given just before the list was made was, um, since you have many Christians telling you the opposite, I just want to encourage you with this. And then it just goes on to list this manifesto. We're going to go through them one by one today. Let's just get right into number one. And what's really funny about number one, I'll just say this, because this is going to air later. So, But yesterday, Mike, you posted about this on Facebook. Yesterday, like this was all over Twitter. This is what everybody was talking about, because apparently some major evangelical leader cussed, and so everybody was discussing it. So it's a real hot topic mm -hmm. right now, Mike. So, all right, number one, Mike, how do we answer this? It's not a sin to cuss. Um, well, before I answer, I just want to point this out. There is an emotional or psychological impact of this kind of a, of a statement. And I think the general impact is here's something a lot of people do that they feel sort of bad about. And we're telling them, don't worry about it, right? right. Like, don't feel bad about it. We're liberating you. We're freeing you from the oppressive conservative Christians and that the, the, the real hell of society, which is you know, traditional Christianity. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's what I get from a lot of the progressive stuff. Nothing gets them more irritated than uh, traditional Christians offering what they see as frivolous rules, you know, for people's lives. Yeah. So that, that, and that sets the theme for the list. The list is I'm going to debunk a bunch of conservative Christian stuff. Mm. And some of it's less important. Some of it's more important. I would acknowledge this is a less important topic yeah. than the other things we'll talk about. But, um, and many people do obsess over words. They do they do obsess too much over words. Like if you're like, you say darn, and they go, you shouldn't say that. That's too close to that other word that we don't yeah, say. Yeah. Or you say, oh my gosh, and then they're like, well, you basically just blaspheme the name of the Lord. And right. that's, I would agree, that's unwise. That's not that's not good. But let me read to you some scriptures because the Bible is not just interested in you not cussing. It goes way further than that. And I don't mean less than that. I mean like more than that. So Ephesians five four tells us. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So no, not even just foolish talk, like just foolish talk is ruled out, whatever that is, right? Colossians 3.8 says, you must now put away slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Obscene talk, this really does parallel with cussing. I mean, it just does. Um, yeah. Sorry <laughs> to does, people who yeah. don't like that. Um, the question here isn't whether you like cussing or not. The question is whether on following Christ, it's consistent to have that kind of language in my mouth, at least casually, which I think is what this is getting at. James 3 tells us that the tongue is a fire and that <clears throat> controlling my, my words, that, that that is like a sample of controlling the whole man. Mm. And then I realized, wow, measuring every word that comes out of my mouth is just a great piece of self-control in honoring yeah. Christ. And Jesus put it this way. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Wow. So, so I do think that cussing probably is in that category. I think in our, and it depends on societies. In our society, we have a certain class of words. Some are debatable, but some are clear. These words are clearly foul language mm -hmm. and that you don't want that in the mouth of a Christian. Some try to use the scripture and they go, well, the Bible has cussing when, uh, when Paul says that he counts it all rubbish. Yeah. Um, no, 
<laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. He uses a strong word there and it basically means feces, right? It, it does mean poop and it is meant to invoke the, your reaction to that idea, but it wouldn't be a parallel to modern cuss language right. or cursing right. language. It's just not a parallel. So I, I've actually looked, and this is why I posted on social media. I was like, someone give me a case. I want to yeah. see the case for cussing on scripture. And it's not there. Yeah. Um, I might do a longer video on this topic one day because I find it interesting and it might be helpful to people. Yeah. But I would say my short answer is biblically, I'm called to so much more than not cussing. I'm not, I'm not called to just not do that. I'm called to care deeply about every word that comes out of my mouth and make all of my life honor Christ. And that means purity in all things. I love that. And you make such a good point about it's not just avoiding the sin of cussing, but how much further the Bible takes it. It's just so stunning when it says you taking into account every careless word, even just the careless words that we've spoken. And yeah. so I think that's a really good point. I think we settle for far too little as Christians. We we do. And 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 you're absolutely right about this list being kind of like, we're going to free you from the shackles of this legalism you've grown up with and all of this. And yeah. so I think it could be really attractive to people because of that. All right. Number two uh, in the list is it's not a sin to be gay. How would you respond to that, Mike? Um, I think I would, I, I mean, I wish I could talk to the person, right, who's writing this, because I would first want to have them explain, what do you mean by be gay? Mm -hmm. Because that's really key here. Um, are you talking about an identity or a behavior? Right. Right. And if you're talking about an identity, then, I mean, it's it's irrelevant to the issue. I, I know I, if you are tempted with homosexual desires or any sort of sexually sinful desire, your temptation is not a sin. Giving and yielding your heart to it so it becomes fantasizing, or if you yield your life and your body to it so it becomes the action, then it's a sin. And in that case, yeah, um, it's a sin. And the response to this isn't like Christians saying, pray the gay away. That's that's the verse. Right. I, that's the quote I always hear. I never hear uh, anybody saying it like they mean it. It's always saying it like sort of caricaturing right. The, right. the conservative, oppressive Christians that we all, that we all are. Yeah. And, um, that's not actually the goal biblically. It's die to self. It's resist temptation and honor Christ with your life. And yes. there's going to be a host of things. You know, number one and two of these first two questions, they're about liberating a person to relax and just kind of be who they are, be who they want to be. And they see Christianity as oppressive to the person. In reality, Christianity is very oppressive to the flesh. Yes. It's very oppressive That's to my sinful point. desires and my sin nature. And there's no, there's no like freedom or liberty to the flesh in Christianity. It's death to self. Yeah. And that's what we're being called to. So um, I think that the, the short answer is this, is the Bible super, super clear on this, that homosexual behaviors and act actions are sinful, but the modern concept of an identity that I was sort of born or have become this, and this is who I'm supposed to be, that that's just, just an unbiblical concept, yeah. right? That, that idea just doesn't belong. Regardless of however you feel you were born, it you know, the cliche is be born again, is, yeah. is come into this newness of life in Christ, follow him, honor him. Yeah. And there's been a lot of attempts from people. I did a whole four-part series on this years ago where I went into like Matthew Vines and the Reformation Project and those who were trying to reinterpret the Bible to fit yeah. with homosexual behaviors. And if the Bible's okay with it, then I'm, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to be like, I want to preach what scripture teaches on this. God has the authority to tell me what to do with my life. But all the attempts to reinterpret the Bible to endorse homosexual actions, sexual actions, have utterly failed. Mm. Um, it just, the Bible's really clear on it. It's not the only issue that matters, but it is an issue that matters. Yeah. 
And if anyone's interested to learn more, check out Mike's series that he did. And I also have a couple of episodes with Alan Schliemann where we directly addressed the points of the Reformation Project and their what they call their biblical points, and we talked through those. But I think that was very well put, Mike. And I think that also as I'm kind of reading through this list, what's standing out to me is that like you said, it's sort of liberating your flesh and saying, just relax, it's all fine. But really underneath some of these biblical mandates is true freedom. It's real freedom. When we surrender our lives to Christ and we we repent of our sin and we pick up our cross and we follow Jesus, there's a freedom in that that I don't think the world can understand. There's a freedom in not relying on yourself anymore, not depending on mm-hmm. yourself uh, and, and fulfilling your own desires. There's there's such a rich relationship with God and freedom that comes when when that takes place. And I think that side of the coin never gets presented in lists like this. Uh, but let's move on to number three. Uh, it, this one should be pretty easy. Number three, it's not a sin to not vote Republican. Agreed. Done. <laughs> we'll give you that one. <laughs> Where does this come from? Uh, yeah, um, I don't know. It's, yeah, I, well, most, I think it comes from that, that kind of caricature that people have of what you might call conservative Christians, is that if, you know, when you put your saving faith in Jesus Christ, you get a MAGA hat and you get a, you know, a gun locker and all this, and, and that goes together. You know, I mean, I, I have wonderful Christian friends who have very strong political opinions, but I don't know any who... Uh, tie that together with the gospel. They're just, they're voting in a way that they think is the most biblical and that they believe is, and we all do that. We're all voting in the way that we believe is going to, because, uh, you know, all laws legislate morality. We want to we wanna legislate as best we can what we think God would have for people. And, and uh, but yeah, I think that's, it's a bit of a caricature and maybe a bit of a straw man. Yeah. And, and it's also um, a setup for what they're really interested in, which is in number four. Mm. <laughs> number four gets you what they really right. care about. This isn't about parties. Yes. This is ultimately about issues. That's right. And here's the issue they care about. So yeah. number four is abortion is a complicated issue. Uh, but then they go on to say, it needs to be legal, safe, and rare. Mm. So it's a sin to vote pro-life. That's what's that's, a sin that's in what mind. Yeah, yeah. They'll never put it that way because they don't want to say it's a sin and fill in the blank after that. But but that's what they're getting yeah. at here. Um, this phrase, it, legal, safe, and rare, um, I remember it from um, Hillary Clinton years ago. And she was when she was running, she was like, yes, it, abortion needs to be legal, safe, and rare. Okay, so it needs to be legal. Okay, so you're, you want legislation that makes sure that abortion – and this would be on demand. Mm-hmm. Abortion on demand for any reason is, is legal. And then it's called safe and rare. Um the irony here is that abortion is never safe. Right. The, the the nature of abortion is that two humans go go in and one comes out. That's right. And the other is disposed of. Yeah. That's not safe. It's never safe. That's right. A human life is killed in every successful abortion. Only failed abortions are safe. And not even those really because they usually mar and, and damage and hurt yeah. the people who survive. So if it's if it's ne- if it's never safe then it can't be legal and safe at the same time. Yeah. That's not a possibility. And then they say it needs to be rare, which is odd, because why does it need to be rare if nothing's wrong right. with it? Right, that's what I was thinking. If it's perfectly <laughs> fine. <laughs> and I, This is Greg Kokel when he responded to Hillary Clinton years ago. He was like, why does it need to be rare 
unless you think something's wrong with it. Right. Unless there's some negative connotation to it. it would, you'd only want to limit it if it was yeah. something bad. What if you replace the word abortion with just like what it really is, which is deliberately, intentionally killing the preborn in the womb of the mother? So if I said deliberately and intentionally killing the preborn in the womb of their mother is a complicated issue. Mm -hmm. Deliberately and intentionally killing the preborn in the womb of their mother needs to be legal, yeah, safe, and rare. Right. Um, no, I think this needs to be illegal because it's never safe, and doing it rarely. It doesn't help. Yeah. Like I only sometimes do this, do this kind of murderous behavior, but then it becomes okay. What's, what's weird is that, um, this to them is a religious issue, mm. right? Like this is their, their, here's, here's me as a, I'm a, I'm a representative of Christianity. I'm gonna deliver you from the bondage of conservative Christians. And I want, I want you to know abortion. You have to vote for abortion, right? Like <laughs> to me, this is a worse bondage. Cause not only are you requiring my vote, but you're requiring it for a, a um, inexcusable behavior. Yeah. And you know they say it's a complicated issue and I, I acknowledge that. Uh, there are times where abortion is complicated, but the, the the probably the only time that people would say abortion is legitimate is when you're when you have a, a mother and a baby and you're going to lose both because of the condition of the pregnancy. And so you do an, you do a procedure, you kill one to save the other. But I think we need to be very very honest about the yeah. fact that we're actually taking a life to save a life. It's like conjoined twins. If one of them is going to die and it will kill the other, that's the only time you can you can separate them resulting in the death of one because that death was going to happen anyways. Yeah. You're just so here we're pro life. We're just trying to save as many lives as possible. Yeah. Very good. All right, let's go on to number 5. This has to do with the wrath of God and hell. So it says wrath of God and hell aren't literal. They are metaphors for swimming against the flow of God's love. I just want to acknowledge how good that feels. <laughs> right? Didn't that feel good? <laughs> wow. Like I honestly, all the tension I have between me and non-Christians becomes just, it just disappears because I'm like, hey man, you're just swimming against the flow of God's love. Like I don't yeah. have to worry about telling you like God's going to like judge you for your sin. I'm just like, you're swimming against the flow of God's love. The irony is that he says wrath of God in hell they're a metaphor for, and then he offers a metaphor. Right, right. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> a great point. For a metaphor? What is, yeah. What, is that, what does that mean? Um, yeah, it, it's, it's ironic. You take something here that's not a metaphor. Hell and God's wrath are not actually metaphors at all. Like linguistically, they're not being used as metaphors. And then you turn it into a metaphor. So they're metaphors, which they're not, for, for what's actually a metaphor. This is, it boggles the mind, the irrationality of it. But I think the power of it is how good it feels. Yeah. Oh man. It, oh, I'm so, I could just tell people, man, you're swimming against the flow of God's love. But I mean, that's kind of like, you know, when, uh, you know, if, if the Chinese army invaded the U S and I'm not, I'm not, I'm just giving a hypothetical situation yeah. here. Um, and then, uh, and then they're shooting everybody who's, who's getting in their way. And I'm like, they're not fighting you guys. You're just swimming against the flow of their love. Like, right, right. <laughs> it just, it, it just, uh, devalues what's actually happening. Yeah. I think there's an allergy to the idea of God's wrath mm -hmm. in the progressive Christian movement. For sure. They eat they and and part of it's because they think that either God A he does have wrath, in which case he's petty, or he has no wrath, in which case he's love. And they see these as as um irreconcilable. But if anybody who has children has been in a situation where somebody harmed or threatened their child, they would have known that love creates wrath very quickly. Mm. And that these are not irreconcilable ideas. God's wrath, of course, is perfect and holy. It's never selfish. It's never knee-jerk reaction. It's always based upon truth. 
it's always the right response. Um, but something should make us mad, right? Child molestation, I, I should get mad. And I, something's wrong with me if I don't get mad. The sin of mankind should invoke wrath. Yeah. And something's wrong with God if he's not wrathful. Right. Whereas the progressive Christian would say something's wrong with him if he is. But if God doesn't have wrath, something's actually wrong. Now, in the Bible, this is clear. There's over 20 different words used to talk about God's wrath towards sin, and they're not metaphors. Yeah. There are um, lots of examples in the Bible. It's like these pinnacle moments of God's wrath, like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Like these are pinnacle examples of God bringing his wrath. And I mean, you can't say Sodom and Gomorrah merely swam against the flow of God's love. Right. You can't rationally say that. Right. Like this, there's fire and brimstone, you know, the flood was not just swimming against the flow. I mean, if swimming against the flow of God's love is being flooded. Yeah. <laughs> then I guess your analogy works. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, the scary reality is that mankind has sinned against God and that this is, this is part of the core of the gospel message. Yeah. The cross doesn't even make sense. If there is no death sentence. Which is why I think the cross doesn't make sense in the progressive Christian paradigm. As we've, you talked about with each other on, we did the a show together on Frank Turk's show, and we did a couple of shows on my podcast about this, that the, the cross doesn't make sense to the progressive Christian. And I think it's largely because if you, if you just look at all of the things that are underneath this denial of the wrath of God, and while you were talking, uh, I was looking, because this sounds so Richard Rohrish to me, uh, because his whole idea of the Trinity is that you're swimming in this flow of the Trinity. And so I was looking at his chapter on God's wrath, and he just he he just outright says God's wrath or doing... Um, is theologically impossible. That's that's what Richard Rohr says. And this is going to build on the next one too, but I was just going to say like so many building blocks are built on the idea that we're not really all that bad as people. So wrath for that sounds horrible. And then of course if you need blood atonement for that, it's just it's like builds upon itself. And uh but but I think it all just comes down to us realizing that we are sinners and that we need a savior, we need salvation and God's wrath um I I just did a a a YouTube video with William Lane Craig and he made he was quoting another scholar saying uh something along the lines of like God's wrath is 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 the only thing that gives us any hope you know because we know that he will end sin and so mm. um yeah that's that's a that's an interesting one um, number 6 though this mm. kind of goes right into number 6 and 7 are all kind of tied together but 6 is God's justice isn't punitive it's restorative and i hear this a lot actually even from christians who maybe aren't that progressive in other areas but um because we think of ourselves like parents we want to do as much restorative justice as we can right we don't want to just rush to punishment we want to try to do positive reinforcement and give rewards when our children do right things and that's true and i think but i think there's a place for punitive punishment which we see all throughout scripture i don't know how you can get around all of the punitive uh, examples of punitive justice, but how would you respond to that? God's justice isn't punitive, it's restorative. Um, well, yeah, so, you know, punitive, for anybody who's not familiar with the term, it just means it relates to punishment, where God's like, I'm just going to punish you because what you did was bad. That's just how how you deserve punishment, so you get punishment. Um, whereas restorative is the idea that I'm, I'm always, I'm going to use this suffering just to bring you back to me. I'm going to restore you back to me, which would imply, of course, universal salvation. Mm. Everybody's going to end up being saved. Everyone's going to end up being okay. Some people would even extend this to Satan, um, that he'll be okay as well. God's because God's, you know, punishment or justice rather is restorative. Um, I have a few concerns about this. One is that 
I think that it can become narcissistic and that, and that's when it, and let me, I'll start by saying this. I don't think it's an either or. I think that what God does in his justice is restorative and punitive. I think it's both. And I think there's, there's kind of a spectrum or flow that goes on here, but it can be narcissistic and problematic when it becomes either or it's because it's all about me, right? Cause when I say God's justice is restorative, what I mean is he's going to restore me, not just restore order, not just restore what's right in the universe, not just restore, um, the scales of punishment equaling crimes, but restore me. Mm. And when I do that, when it's all about me, bring me to joy and me to fulfillment, I have a very narcissistic worldview. What about God restoring justice and righteousness and the rulership of God in the universe? Right. I, I, I imagine if we lived in a world, for example, where the criminals run wild and they're just the cops, they don't do their jobs, right? All the cops do is, is they just keep talking to the criminals about, Hey, you know, it'd be really nice if you just, you know, kind of live better. Yeah. You're really swimming against the flow of my love, you know? And, um, and, but what if then the cops finally decide, forget this, we're just putting everyone who does bad stuff in prison. Okay. And they just start doing punitive justice. Society would rejoice, but you know who would not rejoice? The criminals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the criminals would not be happy. They would be. They, and and I have I've I've done uh, ministry to people who have been convicted of various crimes. I did domestic violence counseling for years, so I'm dealing with perpetrators of domestic mm. violence. Now, most would think, oh, that's the scum of the earth, Mike. Right? These people who who beat their wives or whatever, and um, they don't think that at all. They all think they're great guys. Yeah. And they all think that the judges are crooked wow. and that the cops are, are, are unjust wow. and that it's so messed up. And they, what I'm saying here is when we say God's justice is not punitive, it is only restorative. We are the criminals who are so obsessed with ourself and our well-being and our own perspective that we cannot grant that we might actually be the bad guy. Wow. That's a great and, point. That's a great analogy. Yeah. So restorative doesn't rule out punitive. Uh, punishment is one way God does restore people, but he's also just restoring righteousness, restoring rightness in the land or in the in the universe. And he actually rips on uh, secular, or I shouldn't say secular as much as just uh, non-Jewish governments, you know, the, those outside Israel who don't do this, yeah. who don't do this punitive judgment. But here's some examples. Romans one thirty two, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This means that people who do these types of sins, they actually deserve to die. It's just a just desserts. That's punitive justice. That's what it is. Romans 2, 5, it says in relating those people to us, it says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And it's not a metaphor here. Yeah. It's just actual wrath. So I, so it, and there's a sense in which even when a sinner is just punished and sent to hell, that was a restorative moment, just not for them, mm. but for creation, for the universe and for the rightness of things. Yes, it was. Yeah. And only the narcissistic view doesn't see that as justice. Wow. That is, that is a great answer, Mike. That is well put. Let's go to number seven. You're not going to hell just because you didn't pick Christianity before you die any more than you're going to heaven because you said a magical sinner's prayer at church camp. I've been preaching that for years. I know, right? I'm like, <laughs> read my book. It's, I wrote that in my book. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Yeah. So It's um, sad, though, that that's the, the, that's the perception of salvation, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. So here's a thought. There's a couple of possibilities. They think this is an objection to what many Christians are saying, right? So either they literally don't know what Christianity actually teaches. So they like really don't know. They think that that that's what it teaches or they don't care. And this horrible straw man Mm -hmm. is a useful misrepresentation that helps them get people to adopt their false theology. So they'll just misrepresent it to say, see, I'm the reasonable alternative. Look at how crazy these people are. So there's a couple errors here. Like um, one, uh, you know, there is a hell. Okay. That's what they're ultimately want to deny is that there is a people go to hell at all. But so there, you're not just going to hell because you didn't pick Christianity. Well, well, that's true. It's not just about picking. It's about sin. Uh, the yeah. cause of me going to hell is sin. The rescue for me coming, uh, being saved from hell is faith and trust in Christ. It's his cross that yeah. saves me. But but the cause and the rescuer are important to differentiate. Sin is the cause. Jesus is the rescue. Faith in Christ is my part in that, which just means I didn't do anything to earn it. Yeah. They're acting like lack of faith in Christ is the reason I'm being condemned. Okay, that's not accurate. Right. People people are judged. Now, if they hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit reaches out to them and they reject Christ, that's added to their list of sins. Mm. But it's every sin you've ever committed that we stand for. And um, yeah, there's no magical sinner's prayer. Um, that would just be a vain, magical set of words. This is what Jesus calls vain repetitions. Yeah. We are talking about a real relational experience where you respond to God's offer of forgiveness mm-hmm. and you trust in him. Yeah. That, yeah, that's and that might include somebody praying with you and you even them helping you out by giving you words to repeat or something, but it's it's not about the words. It's not like a, a spell or a magical that's chant. Right. It's, it's uh, yeah, so that, that was well yeah. put. Um, in fact, uh, in my Mark series, which I've been going through, we deal with this, how in the Gospel of Mark, it's like careful work is being done to differentiate Christianity and Christian prayer from magic yeah. of the time. Yeah. And magic was about the words being used and the tools and the numbers of times you'd repeat it and all that. And then they're trying to make it clear. The cool thing about prayer is that prayer is weak and powerless and God still hears it and answers. And so it's it's all about God and his power. And so the idea that I could just turn to God and be like, Lord, I, I'm sorry, I trust in you, please forgive me. And he's like, done. All that's in his power. Yeah. I'm just the weak, needy one receiving his grace. It's good stuff. Okay, so this is a quote. Number eight is a quote from Pope John Paul II. Apparently, I haven't, I, I didn't track that down to be sure that's actually accurate, but this it's stated as a quote. Uh, number eight is, when will Christians realize that heaven and hell aren't literal geographic places, but states of consciousness? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I tried to find this. I was like, did he say that? That's interesting. I mean, I'm not... Roman Catholic. Yeah. And the truth is you can find quotes from popes throughout history kind of agreeing with almost anything you want. Yeah. <laughs> it gets complicated because in Catholicism, most of what a pope does and says doesn't carry the authority of the papacy. It doesn't carry that sort of binding authority right. that people are thinking of. So it gets complicated. But I can't find this quote. Um, I don't think he ever said it. In January 28th in 1999, he did a, an audience where he, and it's published, you can read on the Vatican website, but he describes hell as not just a place. And so he wants us to understand it's more than just a location. It's not just a location. And so he says that it, he describes it as quote, complete frustration and emptiness of life without God. Mm. Um, whereas the progressive doesn't want to even borrow that from him, Mm -hmm. right? They're just, (laughs) this is what they do to the Bible. (laughs) Sorry. This is just quote him out of context, pretend like he agrees. But if you get like, um, I've got it, I've got it way back there on the ground, but if you get like the um, Denzinger's dogmas of the Catholic 
faith, like the things that they believe, you will see teaching on hell that's about the fire and the burning and all this. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the topic. But they don't care about the Catholic teaching. Yeah. They just want someone who sounds authoritative to look like they agree with them so they can then draw you away from a, a real discussion on the topic. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't deny the geography of it. He just emphasizes the experience of it. And there's more official documents from Roman Catholicism. They're actually in councils and stuff that are a lot more um, harsh about the topic of hell. Yeah. And yeah, but again, I'm not, I'm not Roman Catholic. So whatever Pope John Paul says is only interesting yeah. and not binding. It's very similar to Rob Bell's view in Love Wins. When I was reading Love Wins, you know, so much of what Rob Bell wants you to conclude, he does that by asking leading questions to get you to a certain point. But I, there was one point in the book where he was speculating on, uh, you know, he, he spent a lot of time and energy talking about hell on earth, you know, uh, kids that suffer in other countries and things. And then he was speculating on what it might look like on the other side of, of life. And he said, well, maybe it'll be more of that, you know, something like that. But there was really kind of an agnosticism about the actual location of it from Rob Bell. And that would, that was kind of the, uh, I think became sort of the progressive view is that hell, uh, and heaven is really just the consequences of our actions here on earth. It's something that we experience every time we do something wrong and, and we, okay. we get to yeah. experience those consequences. So they're, tr I guess, trying to make the point that, yeah. that, uh, that these aren't actual places, that it's just it's just a state of consciousness and not the other. I, I, yeah, I think the thing to recognize is in Scripture, the um, hell and heaven, as pertains to a, a future, a destination for us, that they're primarily eschatological, which means they're a, they really are about localities. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to be resurrected into new bodies in order to go there. Um, we're living there. We're dwelling there. We're in each other's presence in the presence of God, you know, in heaven, which heaven and earth meet and all that stuff. And yeah. it's beautiful, <clears throat> but hell you, you're, they're resurrected unto this judgment. So there's, there's something literal about it. Now yeah. I, you might say that the fire is a metaphor yeah, and that's okay. It may well be, um, but it's going to be a metaphor for something that that relates to. Yeah. Or something even worse so th that we don't have words for. Yeah. It'll be something negative, something unpleasant, yeah. something like, you know, if I say to you, um, I'm, uh, you know, say I'm in a lot of pain and I go, my body's on fire. Well, nobody takes comfort knowing that I'm using a metaphor. Right. Right. We all know that, oh, he's using that metaphor because this is quite unpleasant. Yeah. And so I don't have the right because I know people will attack Christianity with moral accusations. I don't have the right to, to say, well, God's not going to do what he's going to do. I'm going to start with God's authority on this issue and, and say, if hell is that, if hell is bad, then sin must actually be really bad. Right. Yeah. Because God doesn't overreact. Yeah, that's good. Well, number nine, I can't read the whole thing without violating number one. <laughs> so <laughs> number nine says, penal substitutionary uh, atonement theory is absolute dog poop, I'll say, although that's not the word that's in the post. Uh, God didn't send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins to satisfy his wrath. He did it to satisfy yours. And I just want to pop in before I give this to you, because this was exactly what was told to me by a progressive pastor years ago, that somehow God capitulated to our bloodlust. He gave us our pound of flesh because we wanted it. And 
William Lane Craig, I, I, you can go back and watch this video, but I told him that story and he, he had a reaction to that that was so visceral. And he was like, what sort of a monstrous deity would do that? And, and in William Lane Craig's view, to, for God to say, okay, I'll, I'll sacrifice my son and, and we'll do this just because you want it, that would make him into even worse, like of a monster, whatever they think he is. Like, and and it was. I thought that was. He had such a visceral reaction to that. What's your reaction to this? That Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sins to satisfy His wrath. He did it to satisfy your wrath. Um, <clears throat> well, let's just recognize this is not historical Christianity or biblical. And now, in history, you find weird things in the Church Fathers. Yeah. But you don't find that. Right. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Don't pretend that this is some. Christian view. Yeah, this is good. a very new thing, uh, relatively speaking, and it's not in Scripture either. The idea that God killed Jesus to satisfy your anger, or your wrath. The thing is that it's it's like the story of a, of a father who locks his son in the closet with a with a, a box of cigars, and he says, "Smoke the whole box," and he forces him to smoke the whole thing so that he'll get sick of it and he'll never want one again. Um, th this is the idea: is like, oh yeah, you want violence. Oh yeah, I'm gonna let you brutally destroy, kill, and harm my son, so that you go. Oh, that was so bad. What are yeah. we? What were we thinking? Yeah. Well, um, that's a cute story, but it's not at all biblical. It's yeah. it's anti-biblical. It's totally against what Scripture says. And this comes from like guys like Brian Zahn and Greg Boyd. And anyway, I've dealt with it. You've dealt with it. But um, it's just a denial of scriptural teaching. The the ironic thing here is though, they said that God's wrath was a metaphor earlier on. Mm. Yet now they're denying that this has anything to do with God's wrath. It's all about your wrath. Well, is 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 my wrath literal, but his is a metaphor right. here? Yeah. This is, or do you just make words up as you go? Yeah. <laughs> how it works. The idea, though, is that God's wrath is holy. Mm. If we realize that God's wrath is not coming from a place of purely, um, I, I, the other day I, I hit my shoulder on a cabinet mm -hmm. and I got mad at the cabinet. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, five seconds later, I'm like, I'm being dumb. Okay, this is my wrath. I do this all the time. Yeah. I get mad wrongly. God never does that. His right. wrath comes from his pure justice and holiness. Yes. Because his wrath comes from pure goodness and justice and holiness. God's wrath is good. It's appropriate and it's right. And Jesus dying to satisfy God's wrath, they're viewing as Jesus dying to calm down an overly angry God mm -hmm. instead of Jesus dying to deal with the sin of mankind, which rightly invokes the wrath of God. And so, yes, Jesus does deal with God's wrath toward me so that I might be forgiven, cleansed, become a new creature, be right in his sight and enjoy fellowship with him for all eternity. But it's not, it's not God venting his anger Yeah. because they take it out of the judicial category where it belongs yeah. about the breaking of law and then the, the rightness of real justice. Jesus suffers the punishment I deserve because of my sin. So in that sense, yeah, penal substitutionary atonement is, I would say it's simultaneously entirely true and totally and utterly misrepresented yes. by the by the opposition. Yeah. If they really had a good case against PSA, why do they constantly misrepresent it yeah. so badly? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Uh, number 10 here is very similar to number seven. So it says no one is saved because they picked the right religion any more than they are condemned because they picked the wrong one. Where's that? There's that word again, picked. They picked the wrong religion or picked the right one. What would you say about that? Um, well, I would, I would agree um, with that, although I, I couldn't just sign off because there's a difference between the way they're wording it and what they really mean by it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's written so that they can try to get you to agree with the wording, 
but I can't agree with what they want to do with it. So let me put it this way. Uh, no criminal goes to prison for just picking the wrong occupation. Right. Well, that's true, right? Yeah. I'd agree with that. But I mean, if stealing cars and running right. a chop shop is the occupation you've chosen, then Very I guess good. you yeah. sort of do. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, religion, our, our whole idea of picking religion is about a relational decision to accept or reject the God of creation. Yeah. And when you view it in that light and you go, oh, hold on, I'm not just picking a religion. I'm, I'm choosing to em embrace and worship and love the God of creation or to create idols and worship false images and, and reject him. Yeah. Okay. So then picking religion takes on a whole different connotation. I think the theme we're getting in these questions is let's just dumb everything down as much as possible so we can create caricatures and misrepresentations of things. Yeah. These are, these are just talking points. Mm -hmm. They're just like empty talking points. Yeah. And I, I feel like in discussion with the progressive Christian, you're going to constantly find yourself having to say, but wait, but I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm not saying, I hear you, but I feel like you don't hear me. And that that's what this feels like. Yeah. And it's just, it, it actually makes me sad when I read some of these because I just want whoever wrote this to understand the beautiful gift of salvation, but it doesn't seem that they, they understand that even to start with. Um, oh, so, okay. Number 11 is anyone who interprets the Bible literally needs to take a literature class? Um, so the implication here is that we have one way of interpreting the whole Bible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So either it's literal or it's not yeah. literal. And that's going to be a, we'll, we'll discuss later. They don't even think this is true. Yeah. Um, with, with the later questions they ask. But um, I would say most Christians, Hopefully, well, when they say I interpret the Bible literally, what they actually mean isn't as it being a genre of literal writing. Yes. What they mean is they interpret it as it means what it means. I don't yeah. make things metaphorical that are not. Genre matters. Context matters. Some stuff is very literal. Um, when uh, when they're standing at the ascension and Jesus goes up to heaven, bodily goes up. And then an angel says, why do you stand here waiting? The same Jesus who you've seen come, go up in heaven, he's going to come back in the same way he just left. Well, guess what? His, his return is going to be bodily and physical, just like he left. That's a, that's very clearly not yeah. metaphorical. Although some try to say it is, yeah. and eschatology gets weird because of it. But, but here, when um, you read in the, in the Psalms, my favorite example is when David says, um, I make my bed swim with my tears. Does David mean that he has magical tears that come out of his eyes and they flood his whole room and then his bed becomes like alive and starts swimming around in his room? Right, right. No, no, that's poetry. Yeah. We recognize that. So yeah, you have to interpret genre and context. So I would say this, um, anyone who interprets the Bible as metaphor needs to take a literature class. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. That's so true. Any, yeah, anyone who just allegorizes or, or mythologizes anything they don't really want to have to really take a hard look at or obey, I, I think that's a very good point, Mike. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So yeah, and, and question 12 gets, gets into the detail. You see that they realize it's more complicated. Than yes, that. they do. So number 12 says, uh, these are the four primary hermeneutics for scripture, uh, literal, moral, allegorical, and anagogic. Ana how do you say that word? Anagogical? Anagogical. Anagogical, not just literal. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Okay, I don't understand this one. Yeah. Um, I don't think we have four primary hermeneutics, like at all. Yeah. Um, but I will say this the first one they list is literal. 
Yeah. <laughs> so they acknowledge that you can interpret the Bible literally. Interesting, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so 11 and 12 are self-contradictory. There's no self-reflection here. There's no nuance. There's no careful thinking. Mm -hmm. But moral, moral's not a genre in scripture like literal is, right? Allegorical um, is a tricky one because there are allegories in the Bible. Yeah. Um, Jesus's parables are like allegories. Mm -hmm. but, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can just take, say, well, like, Jonah's an allegory. Yeah. Well, it, it looks it looks like historical to me, you know, so yeah. the, you have to look at the, the different uh, things. So this is not good hermeneutics. This isn't like they're acting like they're accessing. Oh, it's hermit. I use the fancy word hermeneutics, mm -hmm. the art and study of uh, science, uh, you know, interpretation of scripture. Yeah. But but I don't think these are right. Like I want to look at uh, there's there's literal passages. Yes, there are. There's also like poetic passages. There's prose. Those are two different things. There's um, historical passages. Um, there are didactic passages, like in the epistles, which I think are my favorite for some reason. I just love the didactic, the teaching passages. Mm -hmm. passages. So, yeah, um, I don't. Twelve is just. It just feels like nonsense yeah. to me. Yeah. Well, we'll close this episode with this one, and then we're going to follow up next week with the rest of these. Um, so we'll end today's episode with number thirteen. You will either you this one this one by the way I, I believe if I remember right got made into a meme and went all over the place because I saw a meme of something very similar to this everywhere, and so this is uh, you will either use the Bible to interpret Jesus or Jesus to interpret the Bible. So you will either use the Bible to interpret Jesus or Jesus to interpret the Bible. What do you think about that? This is the thing I'm worried about. This is growing in popularity, actually, and and it, I think it is confusing to people, legitimately. Um, this is also uh, the fancy version of this is Greg Boyd's cruciform hermeneutic. Mm -hmm. That's what he calls it, but it's basically the same thing. I'm using Jesus to interpret the Bible. Brian Zahn says he will not go traipsing around in the Old Testament without Jesus. Right. And he rec he recounts a story how he's reading <clears throat> some passage of the Old Testament in the law, and he he brings Jesus with him. Now keep in mind. This is key. What does he mean by Jesus? Yes. Right. Brian Zahn says he's he goes with Jesus and he reads this passage and he says to Jesus, "What do you think about this passage?" And then Jesus and I'm recounting it just the way Zahn does. Yeah. And Jesus says to Zahn, "What do you think about it, Brian?" And Brian says, "Well, I think in light of your teaching about you know loving and mercy that we need to reconsider this and you know basically say it's wrong." And then Jesus says to Zahn, according to Zahn, "I think so too." <laughs> um, wow. This, in other words, this is this. I take my private revelation of Jesus, my private opinion of Jesus, my private extra biblical version of Jesus, and I use him to help me have authority to disagree with what God has said in his word. That is, I mean, this is like idolatry. Yeah. It's it's pretty serious stuff. So there's a dangerous false assumption here, and that's that you have some Jesus that you know about apart from the Bible. Yeah. Like, what version of Jesus are you getting that it doesn't use the Bible? You don't have the Sermon of the Mount without the Bible. You don't have Blessed are the Peacemakers without the Bible. And in Scripture, God labored. He, Jesus himself says that the Old Testament was all about him. Do you get this? Like, Jesus' words, the Old Testament's about me, yeah. which means you are to interpret me through understanding the Old Testament. That I, I think this is huge and people miss it, but the scripture, the Old Testament gives us 
the interpretive grid for understanding Jesus in the new. God lays out all these things like the sacrifices and atonement and his prophecies. And he gives all these pictures of deliverers and uh, Messiah-like figures like Moses and David and all these different characters so that we, when we see Jesus, will understand who he is and what he's doing. What they're doing is they're interpreting Jesus in a way he didn't want them to. Mm. And then interpreting the Bible in a way he never would. Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. He says that all things that are written of him must be fulfilled. Jesus affirms uh, the Bible. And so to promote an attitude toward the Bible that Jesus would never have and would never promote and then do it in the name of Christ yeah. is basically a false Christ creating a false Christianity. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm blown away. I don't know how can I, can I overstate this? This is damnable behavior yeah. in the eyes of God. Yeah, I agree. And I'm going to be dismissed by the progressive Christians as, see, typical conservative Christian, da, da, da. and it's like, well, you're just condemning me. I'm condemning you. The question is, who's biblical? That's, I'm sorry. Yeah, who who's, judges who's between us? Here? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's very good stuff. And we will be back uh, with the next episode to tackle the rest of these. But Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for watching or listening today. If you found this content helpful, please go on over to iTunes and leave a great review, or you can subscribe and click the bell icon on YouTube to know whenever we release a new video. If you want to find out how you can come alongside the ministry in a more meaningful way, check out patreon.com slash Alisa Childers.